Welcome to A Hard Look, the administrative law review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Hard Look. On today's episode, we're going to be looking at one of the oft-recited universal truths in taxes. On today's episode, with the help of our guest, another familiar face to the podcast, Professor John Brooks of soon-to-be Fordham University, we'll be looking at some of the proposals to the tax on the wealth or income of billionaires and other ultra-wealthy households. Just a few weeks ago, for example, the Biden administration recently proposed a billionaire's minimum income tax. We're going to talk today about some of the constitutional and implementation challenges for these tax proposals. But before we dive into the discussion today, let me take a moment to reintroduce our guest for those who are new to the pod. Professor John Brooks is presently a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and currently a visiting professor at Fordham School of Law, which he will be joining them permanently this fall. Professor Brooks has received his JD from Harvard Law School. After law school, he became a tax associate at Ropes and Gray and clerked for Judge Norman H. Stahl of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. He has spent 10 years at the Georgetown University Law Center faculty before moving to his future place at Fordham, and his research and writing focuses on both tax law and the federal student loan program. And as a quick disclaimer to our listeners, the views of our guest today are his own and are not a reflection of his employer, organization, firms, or other individuals in which his opinions could be imputed. Professor Brooks, welcome back to A Hard Look. Thanks. Glad to be back. All right. So let's let's start off with income and wealth inequality, which has been an area of growing concern. And politicians and political candidates alike, especially on the Democratic side, have been proposing various new tax structures, policies, among other things, to try and move more effectively to tax the wealth of the ultra wealthy. What are some of the main proposals that are currently floating around? So there are two uh, two main categories of proposal beyond just trying to tinker with the current income tax in some way, two two major types of transformative income tax proposals. One would be a wealth tax. One would be to to tax the people, not just on the income that's earned, but actually based on their uh, current stock of wealth. Um, The other set of changes or set of proposals would be to have the income tax include a form of income that is rarely or only in, in currently in, in narrow circumstances uh, subject to the income tax. And this would be uh, unrealized capital gain. Um, now, you, the two are closely linked, as you might imagine, because the, the un, unrealized capital gain is just another way of saying the growth in somebody's stock of wealth. And so taxing the growth in their wealth is closely related to taxing their their actual wealth. And that both of these ideas are, both of these proposals are getting at the fact that we have growing income inequality at this very high end in the, at the people who who generate most of their uh, economic, you know, resources through the accumulation of, of wealth. And, um, and we can talk about why why that sort of income or wealth is is poorly taxed under the current um, tax system. But these proposals largely take the form of uh, uh, wealth tax proposals that uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, especially, were 
closely connected to during the political campaigns. Um, uh, Senator Wyden recently proposed a something called the billionaire's income tax, which uh, would tax some unrealized uh, gain. And then just recently, as you mentioned at the top, the Biden administration has come out with its, its version of a billionaire's income tax. They're calling it a billionaire's minimum income tax. I would do some similar things, but also uh, some different things from the Wyden proposal, but in particular would be, again, going after the, the gain that was, would not otherwise be taxed under the current income tax. So let's take that as a leaping point. So what are the like the main problems these proposals are trying to solve? Like, why does our current income tax not do a great job of taxing the ultra wealthy? And what, what are these proposals trying to do better? Yeah, so the income tax does a really good job of taxing wages, um, of taxing like labor income. Uh, it does a pretty good job of taxing business income. People you know, are making, making most of their income through uh, the profits of you know, their business, whether it's a small, small, medium or large business. What it does not do a great job at is taxing the returns to wealth, uh, investment income, uh, or you know, just growth in, 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 especially in financial assets. And for most of the ultra wealthy, for most people, the vast majority of their income is wages, um, and then maybe also business income for some. And if you look at the mix of people's income in the data that you know, most people have very little capital gain income, for example, but or it makes a very small proportion of their, of their income. When you get up into the high end, that flips. And you have people who the vast majority of, of their income um, or the, way in, you know, the, the ways in which their wealth grows comes from the returns to owning wealth. Uh, it's it's the growth in their, their you know mostly in stock portfolios but in other types of assets and most of their income comes from the growth in in their their already you know their the assets they hold currently and the income tax is a pretty good pretty bad job of getting at that and it's for this this distinction about realization and un, and, and and non-realization the only thing the income the only type of capital gain by which I mean the 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 growth in in investment type assets or really just any property. The only way that's, the only type of income that's taxed is if there's a realization event, if there's actually a sale or exchange or you know, some other kind of disposition of the property. But that all of the growth that goes into, all, the, all of the income that arises from the growth in that, uh, the value of that asset goes untaxed until that moment. Um, now for most people, it's again, not, not that, it's not a huge deal. You've got some stock. You need to sell the stock to, you know, pay for your kid's college, and and uh, and so you have some income then, and 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 no big deal. But for um, rel- pretty sophisticated taxpayers with a lot of wealth, it's actually pretty trivial to avoid uh, taxation on uh, that kind of gain. Um, all that one really needs to do is not sell the property. Um, and when you have huge stores of wealth, especially in, in stock, for example, it's pretty easy to access that wealth and, and use it for consumption without ever actually selling any of the stock. So you have, for example, classically famous example is like Larry Ellison for many years. You have this founder of one of the richest people in the country, world founder of um, Oracle Software had, uh, and, and the owner of most, the majority of the stock, for most of his life, never sold any shares to a, to a first approximation. 
but somehow had and, and paid himself relatively little as CEO too. But somehow was able to consume, you know, commensurate with a billionaire's lifestyle. So how does that work? Where does that money come from? He doesn't sell any stock. He doesn't pay himself anything. What? How does that work? Well, he goes to a bank and he says, "Hey, can I, can I, can I please borrow ten billion dollars?" Literally, he has a ten billion dollar credit line. And this isn't just Ellison, Zuckerberg, all these guys had to do this. Give me a credit line um, and I'll spend that, that money instead. And, um, and for some complicated tax reasons, you can, not that complicated, but we don't need to get into it. Um, it's, it's, that method makes it very easy to spend all that money without ever paying any tax on it. Super interesting. Uh, so let's, let's pivot here to one of the first, I think, initial questions, which is, uh, many of the legal issues that critics often raise is that it's, it might be an unconstitutionally levied tax. So I think most people generally are familiar with the powers of Congress under Article 1, Section 8. But much of your recent scholarship has actually elicited that there are other in parts of the Constitution that may be applicable here. Could you articulate the parts of the Constitution that might actually also play a role in this? Sure. So, so when um, these questions of wealth taxes come up, um, or, or and, and to some degree, taxes on unrealized gain. You're trying to get at that Larry Ellison's $10 billion, even though he's not selling any of the stock. Uh, these questions both raise uh, an issue that's, that's been around for a while. It's, it's, it's the, the actual constitutional issue is, is reasonably well understood, uh, at least among tax people. And it's the following. The, the, the Constitution gives a broad power to Congress to tax, like no question, like they, they can do whatever they want. Um, and they can, they can levy any tax they want, but there are two limitations on the methods of taxation. The constitution says that duties, imposes and excises have to be taxed in a uniform way, which has come to mean at the same um, tax scheme must apply to everybody across the country, regardless of geography and that any direct taxes have to be apportioned based on a population. What does that mean? It means that, the, and it's apportioned by state. So it means that the tax must collect a proportionate amount of money from the residents of each state proportional to their population. If California has 20% of the population, they pay 20% of the tax. If Vermont is 1% of the population. I don't know if these numbers are true. If Vermont has 1% of the population, they pay 1% of the, the tax. That's actually challenging to do that. We can talk about it, but that's challenging to do when, when wealth, income, whatever it is, is not distributed proportionally by population. If, if, if California has more wealth than Vermont, uh, then a wealth tax would collect disproportionately more. You know, when I say more wealth, I should say more wealth per capita. Then, then the uh, wealth tax would capture disproportionate amount of revenue from California. So, a lot of this has to do with this interpretation of what is a direct tax, um, and if something is a direct tax, how do you go about apportioning it? So on that point specifically, what does the Supreme Court said? What, what is their typical direction with it? Yeah, this is this is a funny thing because there's an assumption, even among people in my field, not not everybody, but a large number, that of course that that, that you, one should think about this in the following way. 
When you talk about direct taxes, it, it, the immediate opposite category you'd think of is indirect taxes. All right, so we have the combination of direct tax, we have direct taxes and we have indirect taxes. And then people immediately start thinking, well, I kind of know what that means. Uh, it lines up with some of the ways economists talk about it. It lines up with some ways that the European Union deals with it legally. And the idea would be, well, a direct tax is a tax on a person uh, 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 and an indirect tax is a tax on a transaction. So an income tax on the one hand and a sales tax on the other or something like that. That's a sort of colloquial way within the tax world and the uh, public finance world to think about it. That is not how the Supreme Court has approached this. And it's, it's essentially just that these, it happens to be the same two words, direct and tax, that are used to describe something completely different than a, sort of a colloquial understanding of direct taxes. And the Supreme Court actually for the, for, for, uh, of the first hundred years of the Republic had a very clear jurisprudence on this and said that, and, and held this explicitly, this was, this was black letter law, that a direct tax would only be a, a head tax, which is just a tax on a person just because they exist. Everybody has to pay $1,000 um, or a tax on land and other, maybe other kinds of real property. And that was a very, so a very limited category of things were explicitly held to be direct taxes and everything else was some kind of duty impost or excise, which remember is the only other category in the constitution. Uh, constitution is silent on indirect, never uses the word indirect. It's only direct on the one hand and duties imposed and excises on the other. Um, so that, you know, but then, then uh, there was a change in uh, late 19th century, famous uh, case called Pollock versus uh, Farmers Loan and Trust Company, where um, they said, well, actually, this was a, a case about an income, the first income tax, not the first income tax, an income tax. They said, uh, well, actually, we think a direct tax is any a tax on any kind of property, not just real property. And furthermore, we think it's relevant for the income tax analysis to ask whether a tax on the income from property has the effect, same effect as a direct tax on property. And they said, we think it does. And so they, they invalidated an income tax under, under constitutional grounds on that basis because the income tax in question was not apportioned. To be clear, they had just a few years ago said that an income tax was constitutional. So this was a, this was a pretty, uh, uh, you know, blatant uh, about face and led eventually to the 16th Amendment, which allowed the taxation of income without apportionment. Um, but that's basically the last thing they've had to say about a direct tax. And so the standard understanding right now, as phrased in a lot of cases, is that a direct tax under current law, current Supreme Court law, is a tax on property solely because of its ownership. So if we see a revival in this jurisprudence at all, have we been given any sort of insight? Has the court, Supreme Court specifically, like hinted at any sort of possible interpretation or are we still kind of like in this this unclear sort of state of affairs? If they've the, that that formulation that I just used has appeared, you know, relatively recently, including in the the NFIB versus Sebelius case around the Obamacare, um, because there is some question of the tax powers there, of course. Um, and, uh, and so that, you know, it's dicta, but that was, they said, you know, we, you know, our, our cases have held that this is what a direct tax is, um, did not seem to express any interest in going beyond that. But we of course have a number of originalists on the court 
Um, and there is a reasonably robust debate about what the original meaning of direct tax might have been. Um, and uh, so it's at least possible that this could that there could be some some changes in this. Uh, but that a notion of uh, a direct tax being a tax on property solely because of its ownership um, seems to be the consistent way this has been expressed even in recent cases. I should say though, that there's another side of this, which is not just what is a direct tax, but what is an excise because everything else is a, is, you know, a duty imposed or excise. And oddly, again, it doesn't fit in with the, this sort of constitutional law of this doesn't, doesn't easily slot into more colloquial um, understandings of this because some of the examples of excises, normally we think an excise tax is like a, you know, uh, cigarettes or liquor, that kind of thing, right? That you just like, uh, a tax on on a, on a certain kind of commodity or something. Things that the Supreme Court has held to be excises, an income tax, the corporate tax, the estate tax, um, a tax on uh, trading commodities. Um, lots, uh, you know, uh, in terms of like a like at a, at a commodities exchange, um, uh, uh, certain forms of early forms of currency. Um, so there's a lot of stuff out there that that is broadly put under the constitutional category of excise tax for the purposes of making, you know, of, of shoring up Congress's power to pass those taxes that they said, you know, we we can describe these as excises in the sense that they are a tax not on property solely because of its ownership, but a tax on a particular privilege use or um, uh, or, or you know, a particular uh, 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 use or privilege of that property, um, the tax on perform uh, on 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 cor the corporate income tax is a tax on the privilege of of um, take carrying on business in corporate form, for example, um, and therefore is an excise. So there's a lot of room in the jurisprudence for some of these proposals to be characterized as, as excise taxes before you have to rely on the kind of last chance of maybe they, are, they could only be described as a direct tax. So if we, if we sort of take like a little logical exercise and hypothetical that if we, if we do have a Supreme Court that is willing to read the direct tax provisions or portions of the constitution expansively, what are the options that we have if, if an unapportioned wealth tax is off the table, are there other ways to sort of draft legislation to sort of comply in that notion? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two steps to this, I think. One is to try to draft it to, to make it especially clear that, it, that, they, that it's an excise, to, to fit it within the case law that describes all these other things as excises, to make it clear that you're not taxing property solely because of its ownership, but you're taxing the act or privilege of um, holding wealth, holding super high concentrations of wealth, you know, under the protection of the, of, the, of the American legal and economic system. If we're talking about a wealth tax, if it's a tax on unrealized income, you have somewhat more uh, uh, protection there because it's characterized as income, not as wealth. There are some challenges that we can talk about, but it's, it's a little bit an easier sell there because an income tax is already both held to be an excise tax and also clearly allowed under the 16th amendment if unapportioned. But if you wanted to, if, if, but if that didn't work and the Supreme Court says, 
a tax on wealth or a tax on unrealized gain is equivalent to a direct tax, you, you got some other stuff you need to do. You need to figure out how to apportion it. For about, you know, for a long time now, apportionment has been seen as impossible. And so sometimes this debate collapses to is a wealth tax constitutional or not, under the assumption that an apportioned wealth tax is impossible. But it's important to understand that that's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution doesn't say a wealth tax is unconstitutional. It says it must be apportioned. The only thing that's unconstitutional is an unapportioned wealth tax. If a wealth tax is even a direct tax, which I don't concede, but if, it, but if the Supreme Court holds it to be one, then it's only unconstitutional if it's unapportioned by population across the state. So what do you do? Well, you can apportion it. Now that raises some ethic, uh, uh, equity issues because now you're taxing the wealth of people in poorer states more heavily. Okay, so if a state doesn't have as much of a stock of wealth per capita, you're given wealthy people are gonna be, have to be taxed more in order for that state to contribute its proportionate share. That seemed to be like, why would you tax the, the wealthy people of Mississippi at a higher rate than the wealthy people of California? That seems wrong. So a couple of responses to that. First, these proposals are talking about taxing very, very few people. Somewhere between, depending on the proposal, 700 and 19,000, you know? So we're talking about, this is not, which is only to say that that mutes the equity concerns to a degree. Um, second, we have tools that can offset the apportionment problem, this, this, this problem. For example, you could say, um, okay, we need to raise a disproportionate amount from, from the wealthy, ultra wealthy in Mississippi, but the federal government could find ways on the spending side to rebate a lot of that money back to the state. The only thing that has to be apportioned is a federal tax, a federal direct tax. The constitution is, is silent on the spending side of things. So if that money could be directed back to the state, that extra money could be directed back to the state in some way, either to the state or even back to those taxpayers, you can offset some of this, some of the some of the equity problems of, of apportionment. You could, for example, give a block grant back to the back to the state in question of the sort of extra tax collected, and then that state could credit some of that money back on on state taxes, and it, and you go right back. You know, it sort of would unwind the extra tax that applied to to Mississippi, and and everyone would be sort of as if they had just paid a uniform wealth tax. You could say like, well, wait a minute, can't the Supreme Court see through that and say that that's just actually an, an unapportioned direct tax? The Supreme Court, you know, at the end of the day, they can do what they want, but the Constitution only has an apportionment requirement for federal direct taxes, says nothing about federal spending, says nothing about state taxes. Um, and to be clear, we already have very unequal, non-uniform uh, when you think of the combination of federal and state taxes, it doesn't comply with the uniformity requirement because state taxes vary quite a bit. And so clearly the constitution is, does not forbid that. Um, and uh, so we think it shouldn't, it shouldn't forbid some of these other, we, other use of more modern and complex fiscal tools to, to, to create the arrangement that you want. And just to say, I mean, look, we already have an incredibly complicated basket of, 
fiscal instruments that we all live with um, to try to, you know, to try to unwind it, all of it for some constitutional test is almost impossible. I think it's really interesting to think about the sort of broader schema that we have and sort of the, the complexity that goes into it. I think it's really valuable to think about those when informing a discussion like this. And so now that we have like this framework for the, the sort of congressional and constitutional element of this, I think it's important to think about and be forward looking and thinking about what does administration look like? So sort of beginning initially, how, how does the IRS generally administer the tax code? What are the key components here? Yeah, so the IRS is, you know, an agency like like any other in a sense, um, and issues regulations and and also a number of different types of uh, of rulings of varying degrees of of authority, um, and uh, you know, it's given the the authority to do that um, through um, congressional delegation through the through the tax code. Now, for a long time, you know that. There was for a long time this idea that that tax was different administratively, that it, it was um, separate from or certain sort of outside a lot of the standard administrative law uh, doctrines, uh, did not have to do the same degree of notice and comment, um, you know, could, uh, uh, was not subject to the same kind of Chevron type standards even. Um, but uh, I think that's been slowly, you know, eroding, and I think is mostly gone now. So that I think that most, you know, administrative tax scholars treat uh, taxes as just like any other uh, area of administration. Uh, but the reason for that, you know, potentially, or at least that history of tax exceptionalism has to do with the, you know, large degree of, of work that the IRS does here. I mean, they issue the, the degree of regulations and rulings and so on. I mean, perhaps I'm, I'm biased here, but it strikes me as uh, well beyond uh, the, in terms of volume and importance. Uh, that's, not, that's not to say well beyond. It's, 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 in, it's an incredibly important piece of the tax system uh, in terms of the volume and, and complexity and, and specificity of, of the regulations and, uh, and how much that plays a role in the overall administration of the system. If we take that, that wealth tax discussion we had earlier and we add it to the current Internal Revenue Code and administration, how does it change the landscape of administering the tax code itself? The big thing that would, so it would be a different, it would be a different way of levying and collecting tax in a couple of ways. A big one is that both a wealth tax and a tax on unrealized gains, a tax that would include unrealized capital gains in the definition of income, rely need to rely on some degree of valuation the big advantage of a realization based system and the reason why we've keep you know we've, we've been it's been hard to change this for for a hundred years is that when you can point to a market transaction you have an external check or an external degree of validity on the valuation like you know what something is worth it's in a simple case it's been converted into cash you know what it's worth. You've got the you know you've got the cash to pay the tax. Um, you know, we're kind of closing that transaction and moving on to something else. So we can kind of wrap it up, see how much money you made, and pay the tax on it. When you don't have a realization event, when you don't have a sale or disposition of the property, you just you know you, you just still own a house. And how much has the house gone up in value this year? And that's your income. There needs to be that some way to figure out how much it's gone up in value. You need to figure out what the value of it is. So that's a challenge. 
for some assets and for um, for publicly traded stock, for example, or broadly speaking, tradable assets, uh, that's not hard. We have enough, we can look at other market transactions for purposes of figuring out the value of, of the stuff you still own. For the non-tradable stuff, that gets more difficult. Um, and so the, 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 the big question that these taxes are gonna have and the big sort of change in administration is figuring out a way to do that valuation in a way, you know, in a way that's not, there are, valuation comes up in taxation, right? I mean, for estate taxes, for example, there's always going to be some degree of like checking the value of something that ma it matters, right? But this is going to be, it would be a, a degree of importance and centrality to the, the actual operation of this tax that I think would be somewhat new. And that would be adding a new layer of, to the types of things that the IRS does now. I think an, uh, an important part to Alyssa here too, is we're talking about the valuation of things. Um, especially for assets that are less liquid, like you, like you had mentioned, or like stocks, they're generally fairly alienable as a matter if they're publicly traded. But so, but shares like in private corporations, for instance, real estate, I mean, artwork, um, this is somewhat newer territory for the IRS and taxpayers could be pretty aggressive on this point. I'm curious, how would this all operate? Like, what are the challenges that are highlighted by this? Yeah, and this is where a lot of the proposals sometimes end or sometimes, you know, where this is, this is where they get tripped up often. The constitutional issue is important and a lot of people do focus on that, but on the policy side of things, um, it's, it's often this question of valuation and, 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 and what do you do about a situation where, for example, um, you, you're, you're making a little bit of an, of, a, of an estimate about what something's worth. And then also they haven't sold it. So they don't have the tax to pay the, the, the cash to, to pay the tax. Maybe. Um, what do you do about that? So what are some of these proposals, they take different approaches, but I'll just talk about what the billionaires income minimum tax does, which is this sort of newest latest proposal that just the Biden administration just, just dropped a couple of weeks ago. What they say is for these non-tradable assets, we'll look to some, you're, Again, we're talking about the richest 0.00 whatever percent of the population. These are guys who know what they own. They know how much it's worth. They're valuing it all the time for other purposes. They're valuing it because they're borrowing against it. They're valuing it because they wanted to put it on their financial statements for some reason. They're valuing it for insurance purposes, especially if we're talking about like artwork. So they got, they're going through a valuation exercise of some sort at various points throughout their ownership of the asset. So what the, what, the, what the proposal would say is, okay, we'll just, whenever there is one of these valuation events, when you buy it, when you put it on your financial statements for some reason, when you use it for collateral, when you, when you get an insurance value, you know, valuation for insurance purposes, um, we'll use that. And, and then the next time you do it, we'll change the value again and so on. And in the in-between periods, so, you know, maybe you're not valuing it every year, let's say. You might, you might be these, you know, these guys, but, but let's say, you're, you know, it's five years between, between one of these valuation events. They would then say, well, okay, we're going to assume it grows at a certain growth rate. I think they're saying a sort of treasury, you know, treasury rate of some sort plus, plus something, uh, um, a sort of a, a rough estimate of how much, you know, the sort of general market growth in, in the value of, of assets is. Um, 
we'll just assume it grows at that rate. And that would be the income that we include in the, in the tax. So when there's a, you know, when there's a start with some initial valuation event, see how much, you know, make an estimate of that growth each year when there's some other valuation event, then they need to kind of, they'll, you know, look back and say, okay, do we need to clean up any of those prior estimates now that we have a, a, a know what the real growth is, but it's going to say, you know, it's not, they're not saying, You've got to go hire an appraiser every year to tell you what your, uh, you know, what your estate is, what your what your what your home is worth. Uh, you don't have to do any extra work, essentially. Where that and that's where the gaming would come in, right? If we're hiring people to do appraisals just for tax purposes, you can imagine how that would go. Instead, they're saying, okay, you don't have to do it every year, but when you're appraising the value of something for some other purpose. Um, we're going to piggyback on that and kind of develop our sense of the the this you know the unrealized gain in these assets through that that process. But that's then going to open up this other sort of degree of administration, and and it's going to be another area of practice for tax lawyers and tax accountants. It's going to be you know some work for the IRS to write the the rules appropriately to figure out what are the valuation events we're going to look to. It's obviously going to get very complicated, right? It's like what you know. If you're if you're naming it as an asset for collateral purposes for for borrowing, are there going to be um, certain types of borrowing that are different than others? Is it you know non-recourse, recourse, you know whatever, right? It's going to get very complicated, and there's going to be a lot of negotiation on that. But I think it's that's where the if one of these these laws were to pass, I think there would be end up being a lot of work on the on the regulation side to figure out exactly how to administrate some of these valuation uh, methodologies. Thinking about the sort of agency collaboration possibilities that might be offered by a system like this, I know, for instance, you know, public reporting by the SEC on, you know, holdings in a company, for instance, that, I mean, as we talked about with the Oracle holdings earlier, you know, somebody who just basically acquires and holds for an extended period of time. I don't know, is there... Would interagency collaboration, I, I give that as an example, but are there sort of, would that hamstring... Um, like sort of the regulatory aspect of this? Are there benefits to implementing co congressional policy via interagency collaboration at all? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's 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 ways in which this happens al already to a degree and for other purposes. I mean, we're, so just for example, we, we talked so not, not so long ago about student loans. <laughs> right now to get into one of the income-driven repayment programs for student for student loans, the the sort of automated system that you you know you fill out or whatever calls to your IRS tax data to determine, you know, if you qualify. So there are these linkages between agencies sort of on a computerized basis. And they've done some similar things around like, you know, our, you know, the, the, the Department of Education wants can ask the VA if you're disabled or something like that. And that can be um, connected. So uh, but on, on this side, I think it would be a lot of it would be some some it would be interesting. Uh, area to explore on these valuation stuff because it could be that there are there's there might be da data that other agencies have around valuation that would maybe get automatically reported to the IRS um, or uh, that they would you know could could look to as, as evidence I don't know you know if like the Fed has stuff or the or other banking regulators um, might have some information um, maybe, uh, I mean, a lot of it would be around valuation. So it would be, it would be some of these, the more, you know, economically focused agencies, you know, does the Department of Commerce have any, have any data because of relationship to particular loan programs or something. So I think it would be, it would be, there'd be some useful areas, I think, in terms of shoring up the, 
the evidence on on valuation by looking at sort of where uh, where people have reported value of assets for for non tax purposes. So, and Professor Brooks. Thank you again for joining me on another episode of A Hard Look. We appreciate your valuable insights and discussion on these administrative questions and the constitutional aspects of them as well. Do you have any final comments for our listeners today? Um, I guess I would say that, you know, these, these, these programs are, these proposals, I should say, are, um, have, not, have not gotten that far yet, right? These are just proposals. But we're seeing more and more of them. The frequency between them is going down. Each one is getting more and more specific on the technical aspects, the the, the drafting aspects, the the the, the implementation aspects, um, and we're also seeing this, of course, at the same time that that the large stocks of wealth of the the sort of ultra wealthy continue to grow, and they continue to use that wealth to exercise power. Um, even if that's power in the form of buying 9.2% of Twitter, um, these are not questions that are going to resolve themselves. Uh, and the tax system has an important role to play in managing and muting some of the more uh, difficult distributional questions that are raised by um, our economic system. And nobody has yet come up with a better uh, tax tool in our existing income tax to to manage some of these problems. And it strikes me as somewhat inevitable that um, reforms along the lines of what we've talked about are going to have to happen at some point. And it's important that we keep working to figure out the details on how to make it work well. Awesome. Thank you so much. And everybody, as always, and this is this is my last recorded episode as host of A Hard Look. It has been a phenomenal journey. There have been many great discussions and everything, and I'm so grateful for all those who have joined me along the way and have helped out producing this podcast. So for one final time, as always, I would like to thank our guest for his substantial and important contributions to the discussion today, the American Bar Association's Administrative Law Section, the Administrative Law Review, and of course, the podcast on Kubra Bobberterk for their continued support, resources, and work on making this podcast a continued contributor to the important discussions happening in the world of administrative law. Alexander Nam and Ava Bogdawick will be the new senior technology editor and tech editor, respectively. So if you have any interest in coming onto the podcast or helping out, please reach out to them. Same contact information available on our website. Thank you. And well, I guess everyone else will see you on the next episode for me. Thank you one final time. 